Morning. Okay, um, just real quickly, we are still in the book of Matthew. I assume we're going to be here for a long time, uh, and we're breaking this book down into several groups of series that cover specific topics so we can more adequately cover all the subject matter. And right now we are in a series called Kingdom Come. Now, we've been discussing, when we entered Matthew 24, uh, I told you that it's one of the most prophetic chapters in the Bible, and especially in the New Testament. And uh, so in order to more support that and to give you some background, we went back to the book of Daniel for a few weeks uh, so we could look at something called the 70-week prophecy, which covers, I think it's probably the best end times prophecy there is. But uh, we went back and looked at that for a few few weeks, and this week we're going to kind of marry the two together and kind of come back into uh, Matthew slowly, uh, and we're going to continue discussing that 70-week prophecy, uh, especially the 70th week of the 70 weeks. Now remember, a week is a group of seven. We determined that the 70 weeks were 70 groups of seven years, uh, and that there was a span between the 69th and 70th week called the church age. That's the time frame we're in now. That 70th week will begin with what? (coughs) You can answer that. The rapture. It'll begin with the rapture, and then after that, we'll go into this seven-year period that was designed to draw Israel back to Christ. Uh, Now the first three and a half years will be good. The second three and a half will be pretty difficult. So We're going to take a look at the difficult times or the perilous times, which is the title of today's message. And those times are the last three and a half years of that 70th week. And we're going to see how the enemy is going to persecute all these tribulation believers. Um, But the thing that I find amazing about this is that even though the enemy is coming at him with everything he has, I mean, he's just letting both barrels go, God is still faithful to him, and he's still there for him. I mean, even in the most trying of times, he's still there for him. And one of the things I think it's important that we remember when we study prophecy is that God didn't inspire prophecy just to make people fear the end of time. God inspired prophecy to show people how to be confident in the end of time. He he doesn't want you to be afraid. If you're afraid, there's something that needs to be adjusted there. So let's dive right in. That's as quick as I can do a recap. So let's jump in. Uh, Matthew 24, starting in verse 15. Jesus said, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Uh, Whoever's on a housetop must not go down and get the things that are in his house, and whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. Okay, now, the word abomination. uh, Has anybody ever heard that people use the word abomination? It's not a real popular word. It is in the Bible, but uh, the word abomination just means a thing that causes disgust or hatred. Now, in our, t- in our times, an abomination to us may be someone who injures children. That would be something that we would consider an abomination, or a serial killer would be something that we would consider an abomination, something that, that brings disgust or hatred. But in the Bible, it's mainly associated with idolatry. Does everybody know what that is? Meaning that you're worshiping something other than God. Whatever you're worshiping, that is what you are uh, making your idol. Uh, but uh, the abominations usually affiliated with idolatry, evil, and ungodliness in the scripture. Now, the abomination of desolation describes an evil or an ungodly event. Okay, that's what we're talking about today, because this is a noun. Okay, so it's using, uh, it's talking about an ungodly or an evil event, right? And this is really important, because if if you translate it more accurately, it could be translated, the abomination which makes desolate or lays waste. That's how that could be translated, probably should be translated. Uh, Now, it's important also that you understand the word desolation just means abandoned or deserted. 
Okay, when something's desolate, it's been abandoned, it's been deserted. And that kind of gives you an idea of which way we're going here. So last week we learned that the Antichrist is going to bring peace for the first three and a half years of that last week, that last seven years, the tribulation period is what it's you know, better known as. And so much so that he's going to broker peace in the Middle East, which is a feat in and of itself. If that's all he did, that would be enough to know that there's something going on, something supernatural going on. But he will bring peace between the Muslims and the Jews. Right? He's going to bring a peace that's never existed between the Muslims and the Jews. And in fact, the Muslims are going to go as far. Somehow he's going to convince them to surrender the Temple Mount. Now, the Temple Mount was where the original temple was built. But now the Temple Mount is owned and controlled by the Muslims. And they actually have built something called the Dome of the Rock there, and it's an extremely holy place for them. Okay, now, no one could convince. Can you imagine the Islamics just saying, I know we've hated you for centuries, but here, just, just take the land, knock the building down, build what you want. I mean, that's, this is what he's going to be able to convince them to do. They're just going to surrender it and say, you know what, you had it first, we're just going to give it back to you, and they're just going to surrender the Temple Mount back to the Jews. All right, now, once they do that, we learned last week that, that the Jews are going to rebuild their temple, and they're going to reinstate the sacrifices uh, that they once previously had in the Temple Mount. So things are going to look really good at that time. But then comes the second three and a half years. So there's peace for three and a half. The second half is the absolute polar opposite of the first three and a half. Okay? The Antichrist is going to reveal his real identity, and he's going to commit unspeakable acts in this last three and a half years. And he's going to do this so that the Jews will go, he, he's the Antichrist. That means that if he's the Antichrist, that means that we actually really crucified the messiah when we crucified jesus he was really the messiah so this is what's going to turn them back to christ that's the whole reason for this 70th week is so that they will it's going to take something huge to turn them back to christ as we said last week i mean they didn't turn to jesus when he raised people from the dead i don't know about you but i think that would i'd buy into that what do you think I mean, raised people from the dead, healed people, walked on water, calmed storms with a word. He did all these amazing things, didn't faze him. But when they see the terror that's coming from this Antichrist, and they realize that he was the Messiah, they will believe. And that's why he's bringing this, this on, the 70th week, on the world, so that they will turn back. Because he made a promise to Abraham that he, they would uh, enter that kingdom. Right now, it says that he's going to commit an abomination. Okay, now... It gives us some specifics. I mean, we won't know exactly all the abominable things he's going to do, and I'm glad I'm not going to be here to find out. You know what I mean? I'm going to be watching from the good seats. But we don't know all the things he's going to do, but we do know a few. Okay, and he's going to commit this abomination, and we'll talk about some of the things he's going to do later, but he'll commit this abomination right in the Jewish temple. All right, so he's going to do something that brings hatred or disgust right in the Jewish temple, and it's going to be so bad that it's going to make the Jews abandon their new temple they just rebuilt. So the abomination that he commits will bring desolation when they abandon the temple because of the terrible things he's done. Does that make more sense to you now? That's what the abomination of desolation is. The Antichrist is going to do something just terrible in the temple, and the Jews are going to go, uh, we're not even going back there. We're done. Okay, so that's, 
that's some of the things it tells us that he does. Now, there are two events in history that some people mistake uh, for this prophetic event, and I want to clear those up. First, there's a lot of people that think, and we've talked about this a lot, that the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, you know, with Titus when he came in and destroyed the temple and the city, there's a lot of people that started to say, you know what, maybe that was the abominable thing. Maybe, maybe Titus was the Antichrist. And I'm like, listen, that was not what Matthew was talking about in verse 15. This is not the abomination of desolation. And as you see, as we go through this message, there's a lot of criteria that didn't meet. So we know that's not the case, but a lot of people used to think that. Now, the second event we're going to spend some time on, okay? Because the second event was the reign of a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, okay? And he, he reigned around 175 B.C. Now, he was not the one that Matthew's talking about. He was not the one that was going to commit the abomination of desolation. He is not the Antichrist, right? But, but, Antiochus is going to be probably the most accurate depiction of what the antichrist will do when he comes i mean a lot of people have even labeled him the pre-incarnate antichrist i mean yes he's a form of antichrist but some people say no he's like a pre-incarnate form of the real deal what he's doing is going to give you a really close idea of what the antichrist is going to do so let's talk about this guy okay so in 175 bc antiochus became the ruler of the seleucid empire okay and this is in the Middle East, right? Now, uh, Antiochus was, was famous for one big thing. I mean, there was a lot of things he was famous for. But he was really famous for being brutal to the Jews. I mean, he brutally persecuted the Jews. He was kind of the Hitler of their era. He absolutely hated the Jews. And he was well known for, for what he did to them and how brutal he was and how, how, how much he persecuted them. Right now... Antiochus was ruthless, okay, he was a ruthless leader, he was a brutal leader, and what makes it even more scary was not only was he ruthless and brutal, but he was extremely impulsive, okay, so, and you know, an impulsive person just does stuff that shocks you, okay, you don't want a guy who has no, uh, some sociopath that doesn't mind killing men, women, and children being impulsive, okay, but he was impulsive, and if he, if he got a whim that somebody was against him, he may have their entire house and their family and everybody that's related to him killed and their houses burnt down just because he had the feeling. Okay, he was an impulsive, evil, ruthless, brutal man. But he was also kind of delusional because his real name was Antiochus IV. Okay, the name was Antiochus IV. Now he was the son of, get this, Antiochus the Great Third. Imagine filling that out in kindergarten, Right? <laughs> But here's what happened is he didn't want to be known as Antiochus IV. So he gave himself another name. He called himself Antiochus Epiphanes. And what that means is Antiochus who is God manifest. <laughs> I mean, talk about a superiority complex. I mean, he, he thought that he was an epiphany from the gods. And he honestly believed, he honestly believed that, that he was a manifestation on earth of the Greek god Zeus. And he demanded that other people call him Antiochus Epiphanes and worship him like he was Zeus. Are you starting to see some of the parallels between him and the, and the Antichrist that's coming? I mean, he demanded that. He believed that, right? He thought he was a manifestation of uh, the Greek god Zeus, right? And like I said, now, imagine what a tough spot this puts the Jews in at that time. Okay, because we know the guy's impulsive. 
We know he's brutal. We know he's a sociopath. We know he is crazy, okay? And he hates the Jews and hates the practice of their religion. Now, I'll be honest with you. I'd move. I'd get the heck out of Dodge. But this is what they had to deal with. He hated them, and that's the kind of man that hated them. And as a result, what he did was he just decided one day that anybody that practices the Jewish religion is committing a crime. It now is illegal, and if we catch you doing it, we'll kill you. Just in one whim, he says, it's over. The Jewish religion is done in this area, right? So, I mean, this, this gave him the opportunity to begin this brutal campaign of persecution against the Jews, and it was brutal. History tells us that he massacred tens of thousands of Jewish men, just massacred them, had his troops go in and kill them, just massacred them. Then he would take the women and the children and the babies and sell them, break up the families and sell them into slavery, right? So he had no problem doing that. He wanted, his goal was actually, history shows that his goal was to wipe the Jewish religion and Jews off the face of the earth. See how much more he's sounding like Hitler here too? I mean, he was insane. This guy was insane. Now, he committed an abomination that history records that, that is probably one of the greatest abominations created or, or recorded in Scripture. Yeah, Titus came in and destroyed the temple. Okay, that was bad. But Antiochus, to make a point, went into the temple and sacrificed a pig there to one of his gods and threw the blood all over the temple. And the reason he did that was that he, he knew that a pig was the most ceremonially unclean of all animals to the Jews. It was the most unclean, right? We got a pig lover. Anyway, um, and so, I mean, when he did this, he got the Jews' attention. He got their attention. But he didn't stop there. He not only sacrifices this pig on the altar in the temple of God, he not only did that, he made the priests in the temple eat its flesh, knowing that it was unclean to them and they were not supposed to, he forced them to eat its flesh. He forced them to violate their own law, right? Now, you got to realize that sooner or later, when someone persecutes people this bad, somebody is going to stand up. I always tell people, you take the biggest wimp on the playground and you pick on him enough, sooner or later he's coming out swinging, right? Well, because of all of his persecution, all of his brutality, finally a revolt started to rise up. Okay, and you may have heard of it. Has anyone heard of the Maccabean Revolt? Okay, this is a pretty cool story. So I'm going to quote something from the apocryphal book of, of 2 Maccabees. Now, this kind of describes what's going on during this time, but 2 Maccabees is a book that is not accepted in the canon of Scripture as inspired, but we do know that it has some great historical facts that we need to consider and a lot of historical accuracies that, that are important for us to know about but it was not considered an inspired book. So let's take a look at what it says. 2 Maccabees 5.11. You probably can't follow along because I highly doubt you have that in your Bible. Uh, starting in verse 11, it says, When these happenings were reported to the king, he thought that Judea was in revolt, raging like a wild animal. Does that sound like Antiochus? Raging like a wild animal, he set out from Egypt and took Jerusalem by storm. He ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy those whom they met, and to slay those who took refuge in their houses. There was a massacre of young and old, a killing of women and children, a slaughter of virgins and infants. 
in the space of three days, 80,000 were lost in three days. 80,000 were lost, 40,000 meeting a violent death, and the same number being sold into slavery. Okay, so this is just a small description of what was going on under this nut job, okay, under Antiochus. So back to the Maccabean Revolt. Now, the, ba- the Maccabean Revolt was led by, a name, uh, med by, uh, led by a man named Judah Maccabee. Okay, but before that, what kind of sparked it was his, he was one of five sons of a Jewish priest named Matanaeus, and, or Mattathias, and we're just going to call him Matt because that's a mouthful. Okay, so we're going to call him Matt. So what happens is Matt sparked this revolution by refusing to worship the Greek gods, even though Antiochus Epiphanes said, you will. And Antiochus Epiphanes said, not only will you worship him, you priests are going to become priests of the God, I tell you. And you will offer the sacrifices, I tell you, to those idol gods. And Matt here, Judah's dad, says, I'm not doing it. I am not doing it. So they found a Jew who was willing to compromise enough to where he said, you know what? I'll take his spot as a priest, and I'll offer the sacrifices to the idol gods if you want. Okay, so he sends that guy to take Matt's spot as a priest. And Matt killed him. And he sent with him, this priest killed that Jew. And then Antiochus sent an officer with him to make sure that he had that transition and became priest. And Matt killed him too. Okay, so Judah's dad was, I mean, bad to the bone here, right? There's a priest smoking people. It's like ninja priest, right? Just taking them down, right? So he kills both of them. And once that happens, he... His sons and a lot of other Jews say, okay, now we're really in trouble. You know what this nut job was doing before this happened? Now that I killed one of his officers and I killed the guy he chose to take my spot, it's going to be real bad. So they, they fled to the mountains, right, to, to avoid that. Now, they weren't just hiding, and we'll see that as we move on, but soon after this, Matt died, okay, and his son Judah took his spot and became the leader. And while they were kind of in self-imposed exile, Right? He organized and executed a revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes and his empire. Okay, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Because I'm, that takes some guts. Am I right? I mean, you're in the mountains with a bunch of ragtag, probably farmers and businessmen, and you know what I mean? And he's like, I can just imagine the looks on their faces. When he comes in and Judah says, my dad's gone, so I got an idea. We're going to attack Antiochus. And his forces, and they're probably going, okay. Nobody wanted to do that, but he, but he planned. He planned in, very, in a very organized fashion. He executed this revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes, right? And here's how he did it. He did something that people just didn't do back then. He used guerrilla warfare. You know what guerrilla warfare is? When I was a kid, I used to think, wow, they teach guerrillas to fight? That's amazing. I got to see that. Right? That's, that's, that's not what it is. It's actually just a war. It's kind of an irregular war tactic where it's not like normally where two armies face off, you know, like they did back then. And, you know, like watching the movies on TV where they charge down the hill and everybody with their swords. And yeah, he's like, yeah, we'll, we'll get smoked if we do that. There's not enough of us. So he used guerrilla warfare. And what guerrilla warfare is, it's just a different kind. It's an irregular kind of war that, that uses smaller groups of soldiers. Right? And they don't run in head-on. They're kind of sneaky. 
right? They, they take small groups of soldiers and attack and do things that no one would expect. And here's some of the things they did. And I don't want to spend too much time in here, although it's cool as heck. Um, they would do like night raids on camps. Like his soldiers would be sleeping, and after they ate and drank, a group of his soldiers would go in and start slitting their throats while they were asleep. You know what I mean? Which, there again, is so gangster. That's cool as heck. I mean, that they thought of that back then. And they would sabotage things, right? I mean, it just said that they did a lot of sabotage, so, you know, possibly loosening the chariot wheels, which would be hilarious, right? But they would sabotage things, so he was a really... It was a really sneaky but, but sharp way of defeating an army way bigger than you, right? That, that was his goal, and he really believed that they could defeat them. And as a result, he and his followers were considered outlaws to Antiochus. Now, you think he hated the Jews. Imagine how much he hated this guy, right? Sneaking in, killing his soldiers in their sleep, loosening chariot wheels or whatever he's doing, you know? He probably goes in and screws the salt and pepper shakers, and the king's going, God, I hate that guy. You know, I'm just kidding. Runs the hot water when he's in the shower. I don't know what it is. But anyway, so, you know, he really hated them. He considered them to be outlaws, he can, that which makes sense, right? So this didn't bother him. But Judah and his guerrilla forces just continued picking away at them. And believe it or not, they actually defeated him and his empire. They defeated one of the biggest, most powerful empires of that time, a small group of ragtag soldiers that just wanted their country back. Not only did they get Jerusalem back, they maintained it for decades. And it's kind of funny. I didn't have this in my outline, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. You know how they maintained it? This guy was sharp. He buddied up with Rome. Rome was the most powerful empire out there. So the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So he's like, hey, I got an idea. They don't like that nut job any more than I do. We ran him off. He'll probably come back, so I'm going to buddy up to Rome. And he buddied up to Rome, and so people knew he was under the protection of Rome for a while, and they left him alone. So he maintained control, took it back from a major empire, and maintained control. So in essence, he beat the pre-incarnate Antichrist. I just think that's cool. Maybe I'm the only one. I think that's awesome, right? Now, because of this, now remember his name was Judah Maccabee. Right? But the Jews actually gave him a nickname. They called him Judah Maccabeus. You know what that meant? Judah the Hammer. Please give me a nickname like that. You know, mine's the Ginger or something, you know. Can you imagine what his battle cry was? Can you imagine? Stop. Hammer time. <laughs> I can't help it. I can't help it. It is cheesy, but I just think that's funny. But anyway... Think about this. They called him the hammer. So he's a very important figure. If you ever want to look up some of the stuff about him, it was, it was really cool. So anyway, that was, that was one of the greatest depictions of what the Antichrist is going to be like. He's going to be more crazy, more delusional, on a mission from the enemy himself to destroy not just the Jews, but everything in existence, anything that loves God. So he was a very good depiction of what the Antichrist will actually look, look like. Now, I've got to watch my time. Now, um, we're going to talk about the actual abomination of desolation. Okay, so let's take a look at this. Matthew 24, 15. It says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through, the prophet, or through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down 
and get the things out that are in the, his house, and whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak or his coat. Okay, so the actual event that Matthew is talking about is going to happen in the 70th week. It's going to happen during the tribulation period, right? And more specifically, it's going to happen in the second half or the last three and a half years of the 70th week, right? And what's going to happen is the Antichrist is going to commit an abomination. He's going to, com- I'm sure he'll commit a lot of them, but he's going to commit an abomination that's going to cause desolation. Second Thessalonians talks a little bit about that, chapter 2. Starting in verse 3, it says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy... I just got to see how many of you were paying attention. The apostasy could be translated and should be translated what? Departure. The departure, remember? The departure. Anyway, that's another sermon. Go back and listen a couple weeks ago. Anyway, will not come unless the apostasy or the departure comes first. What's that talking about? Okay, the rapture comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Who's that? That's the Antichrist, right? Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. Doesn't that sound like Antiochus Epiphanes? Right? And then it says, so that he takes his seat where? In the temple of God. Displaying himself what? As being God. That's why I wanted to tell you about Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a very great depiction. He was kind of the pre-incarnate Antichrist, right? Now, one of these abominations that he's going to commit in this last three and a half years is he's going to seize the temple, and he's going to claim to be God. So he's going to have an argument that people would fall for if they didn't understand the Scripture. He's going to say, okay, I was hiding this from you until you were ready, until I proved it to you through my powers. But remember when everything was a mess, when all those people disappeared and you were all afraid? Who was it that stepped up and brought peace and not just peace, but brought peace in the Middle East? So much so that the Islamics and the Jews were getting along and giving things to each other and worshiping side by side different gods without fighting about them. Yeah, that was me that did that. That was me. And now I'm going to tell you, you come into this temple every day and worship some God that doesn't exist. I am the God of this temple. I've proven it. Now you will worship me. Okay, now this is an abomination to the Jews. This is an abomination, right? This is when a lot of the Jews are going to go, oh my gosh, it's the Antichrist. He's the Antichrist. It fits the pattern perfectly. And they're going to believe. This is when they're going to start believing, right? And this abomination is going to be so terrifying to the Jews, they're actually going to abandon, they're going to abandon their own temple. See how the abomination is going to bring desolation. It's going to make the temple desolate because now, that's the Antichrist. Now he's going to be there, right? And then he's going to start persecuting the Jews even worse than Antiochus Epiphanes did. It's going to be really, really bad. And that's why Matthew goes into great detail about the Jews fleeing. Okay, now a lot of people look into this and they try to spiritualize every word that's said. It's not really the case. Okay, because what he's saying is, hey, the Antichrist, when he's in charge, things are going to be bad, really bad. And those of you of the nation of Israel or any other nation that that chooses to believe, you are going to have big targets on your back. 
They're going to come for you without warning. They're going to kill you. They're going to kill your children. They're going to try to destroy anything that stands for God. So here's what he says. He says, if, if he, you see him coming, when you see this happen, if you're on your rooftop back then, they did a lot of things on the roof. They would bathe on the roof because the water could be heated by the sun. You know, they, you know, played Xbox on the roof. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know what they did. But he's saying, you know, when you're on the rooftop, he said, don't even go back inside and get your stuff. Just get out of there. Just run because there'll be no mercy. If you're in the field, don't go back to get your clothes. Don't go back to get your coat. When they're coming, they're coming to destroy you. Don't even take a chance. Leave. Whatever you're doing, no matter what you're doing, when this happens, when you see this happening, when you see this, this abomination, and you'll know it, take place in the temple, run. Run for your lives. And here's the, another thing they try to spiritualize a little bit. Um, Matthew 24, 19, it says, But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. Okay, now a lot of people start, try to spiritualize them. What does he mean by... Woe to those who are pregnant and nursing. He means it stinks because you have a baby you're going to have to run with. That's what he means. It would stink, right? It's bad enough that you can't get anything and you've got to run before they kill you. Imagine if you have to carry your nursing child with you who would be crying and screaming for food when you're trying to hide from people who will kill you. So he's saying woe to them. He's saying literally what it means. It's going to be really tough for those people. He's saying, pray that it doesn't come on a Sabbath, because during a Sabbath day, they weren't allowed to travel. They had to know, they would literally count their steps, because there was a certain amount of steps that was considered work, and you couldn't work on a Sabbath. You talk about religious zealots, man. Counting your steps? I walk fast. I'd lose count all the time, right? But he's saying, pray that it doesn't be on the Sabbath, because I know how you guys are about your Sabbath, because you're not going to have time to count your steps. You're going to have to just run. You're just going to have to run. Okay, so there's nothing really spiritual here. He's just saying that those situations would make it extremely more difficult to escape when they start coming after him. Right? And then, then he said in the last half of the 70th week, there's going to be these unparalleled persecutions coming on him. Matthew 24, starting in verse 21. It says, For then there will be a great tribulation, listen to this, such as has not occurred since the beginning of of the world until now, nor ever will. Okay, he's saying, it is so bad. Now, they knew about Antiochus Epiphanes. They knew how bad that was. He's saying, oh, that was nothing. Right? Nero, when he was the ruler in Rome, you talk about a sociopath. He rivaled Antiochus Epiphanes. He would use Christians as garden torches and burn them in his garden. He was crazy, right? And Jesus is saying, yeah, you know, when you see all that happening, that's nothing. That's nothing compared to what he's going to do. Okay, there has never been persecution or tribulation like what's going to happen when he gets in control and wants to be called God. And he's saying, nor will it ever be that bad again. So this is... This is a pretty deep warning. Verse 22. Uh, Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Okay, so what Jesus was saying here, and a lot of people, listen, one thing you'll find out about theologians, bless their heart, now I can say anything I want. Right? 
But one thing you'll find out about theologians is they love mysteries, and sometimes they spend more time looking for a mystery than just reading the text. You know what I mean? There's not a huge mystery here. What he's saying here is, if God didn't put a time frame on how long this would last, the Antichrist wouldn't stop until he destroyed every last soul. He's saying, if God didn't step in and put a time frame, if God just let him run as long as he wanted, he would hunt down and kill every living being because that's who and what he is. That's all that meant, right? And notice what he said about the elect. He said, but for the sake of the elect, those days, what? Will be cut short. He said they will be cut short. Now, the elect that Jesus is talking about here, let me clear something up. The elect is anyone who believes. I'm not going to go into all the details of all that and go into all the different things I'm sure you've had thrown at you. Come talk to me personally and we'll talk about it. But that's all believers. But in this context, he's talking about God's chosen people, the Jews, the ones that will believe during the tribulation period. This is who he's talking about. All right, this is the tribulation Jews that believe. Right? These are the ones that figured out, oh my gosh, that's the Antichrist. We crucified Jesus and they'll believe. They'll remember what everyone said about grace. They'll remember the gospel was preached in all the nations. They will believe it, right? This is the ones he's talking about. It says, for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short, right? So, so that's what he's talking about, and he's saying they will be cut short because God put a time frame on it. He's not just going to let him run wild and destroy all life, which is what he would do, right? So it's really important you understand that. Now, here's the thing. God made a promise a long time ago that no one would ever completely wipe out the children of Israel. It would never happen. That was never going to happen. Let's look at this, Isaiah 65, 8. It says, Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, Do not destroy it, for there is benefit in it, so I will act on behalf of my servants in order not to destroy all of them. It's talking about you know, leaving some so that they could take seed and grow again. Talking about the grapes, he's saying, just like, just like the Jews, the, you know, the nation of Israel, I will never allow it to be completely wiped out. I'll never do that because I made a promise to Abraham. And God also promised Abraham that Israel would, that they absolutely would, inherit an eternal kingdom. They would enter this eternal kingdom. It's a promise that he made. Right? Genesis 15, 7. He said, I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting, that's important, an everlasting covenant. That means last forever. Sometimes the word just explains itself, right? It means last forever. Uh, to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. Remember, this promise was for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Okay, the only everlasting possession is a possession that lasts forever. He's talking about having eternal life and entering into this eternal kingdom that he made the promise to Abraham. People don't realize that first thousand years, that thousand years, the millennial kingdom, is just the first thousand years of eternity with Christ is all that is. Right? And this is what he was talking about. He promised that there would be a remnant that would believe he would make sure of it and that they would be able to enter that kingdom. Now, there's something kind of subtle here that I want to point out that Jesus says. It's kind of subtle. Um, he reminded them that Satan can only do what God allows, you, allows him to. Did you notice that? 
He said that he would have destroyed everything had God not put a stop to it, had he not shortened the days. Right? So he's trying to subtly let people know that, that Satan can only do what God will allow him to do. God allowed Satan to have this tribulation period. Why? Because it was going to benefit Israel. It was going to turn Israel back to him. That's why he allowed him to be turned loose. Right? He didn't sneak that in on God. Right? God allowed him to do that. That's the parameters he had to work within. But he wouldn't let him go wild. He's saying, yeah, you can, I'm going to use you to accomplish my will. And at the end of seven years, you're done. Okay, so God sets parameters. And Satan has no, I mean, he has no choice but to keep whatever parameter God places on him. Right? He has no choice. When God sets parameters, Satan has to obey them. Okay, it's really important you understand that because God still sets parameters today that Satan has to recognize and he has to obey. And it's important that we understand these parameters. We've got to understand these boundaries. Right, and I'll explain that. Because when you feel like Satan is just sucking you down the drain, how many people have ever felt like, oh my gosh, is this ever going to end when you're going through a rough time? You ever been there? Oh my gosh. And how many of you start to feel sorry for yourself in that? You don't have to raise your hand, but I will. And you start feeling sorry for yourself. I mean, you're not thinking about the people in Sudan who are running for your life. Your car wouldn't start. You are getting it terrible, right? You're fighting with your best friend. Oh, the, the, the woes of persecution you deal with in the United States, right? You know, you're arguing with somebody at church. But there are times, there are times that we just feel like Satan is sucking us down the drain of despair. And when those times happen, whether real or perceived, when those times happen, we have to remember something. Satan is not all-powerful. God is. Satan is not all-knowing. God is. Okay, we always have to remember, no matter how powerful Satan seems to us at the time, God is always more powerful than him. And anything Satan can do, God can undo. And anything Satan can break, God can fix. Anything Satan can hurt, God can heal. Okay, and we forget that. And we surrender to our fear. And we surrender to our uncertainties. And we allow Satan to take control of us, and he knows all i got to do is persecute that wuss for a little while, and he'll just give up and lay there and take it. And we've all been that wuss, haven't we? Everybody says, I am not raising my hand for that. Forget it. But I'm just saying, we've all been that one sitting there whining and crying. Rather than recognizing, yes, I'm struggling financially, but God owns the cattle of a thousand hills and the hills thereon, and he's promised to bless me, and I'm going to trust him through this difficulty. We forget that no matter how powerful the attack, God's solution is more powerful. The reason we stay in that situation so long is because we surrender to it. We forget to think about how powerful God is. God is always more powerful. And there are boundaries that Satan just can't violate. And it's important that we understand the promises God made because when God makes a promise, it's a boundary. It's definite. It's going to happen. Satan can't change that promise because God made it. You see what I mean? So we need to remember some of these boundaries so we don't give in so easily when things are going difficult in our lives, right? It's really, really important. We have to know those boundaries and know what God has asked us to do to be able to receive those promises and stay within those safe boundaries. For example, Satan can't tempt you without God making a way for you to escape it. I've heard people say, I just couldn't couldn't stop myself. The temptation was too strong. No, you were too weak. That's what it is. It wasn't too strong. You were too weak. Because 
a boundary that God set in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is, listen, that punk, this is my version, that punk can't bring a temptation that I can't give you a, a way to walk away from. And I promise you, when he is tempting you, no matter what it is, if you'll stop for a second and look around you, I have opened a door somewhere else, run. I can get you out of it. Problem is, is sometimes, sometimes we make it sound like we're more of a victim than we are. The temptation comes on, and we don't, we don't want to resist it. We want to take it. It's not like it was forced on us. We might have actually been kicking down Satan's door going, tempt me. I want this. Right? Giving him ideas, whispering in his ear, tempt me with this. Right? Sometimes we just don't look for a way out. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, no temptation, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow, that's a boundary. This is a promise with a boundary who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide what? The way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Listen, Satan knows he has no temptation for you that God can't get you out of. He knows it. He's just hoping you don't. He's banking on the fact that you don't, right? And here's another one. Despite how tough the enemy's attack and how bleak it feels like when we're under persecution if we obey god he's going to work it all out you don't he didn't say you had to understand how just you have to understand that he will that's a boundary satan knows that no matter what i throw at them if they'll trust god he's going to fix it he's going to work it out he's just hoping he's banking on you not knowing so that you can't claim that romans eight twenty eight, and we know that god causes what all things to work together for good to those who what? Love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. So Jesus told us if you love God, you'll keep his commandments. So what God is saying, if you will stay close to me, do as I ask. No matter what calamity the enemy brings on you, even though it looks like it's earth shattering, I'll make it all work out. Stay by me and I'll fix it. Okay, that's a boundary. That's a promise. Right? Those are some really, really important things we need to understand. So finally here in verse, let me see where I'm at. Finally here in verse uh, 23, it says, Then if anyone says to you, then if anyone says to you, this is during that time, we're back into the tribulation, back when he said, run when you see him coming, don't go back and get your clothes, and, right? He says, then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if, po- if possible, even the elect. Okay, so one of the tricks the Antichrist will use, and this is nothing new. He's been doing it forever. Okay, but one of the tricks he's especially going to use then is he's going to perform supernatural miracles. Right? He's going to, he has powers. Okay, he's going to perform some supernatural miracles and say, wait, only God could do this. Right? Or he's going to say, hey, I am the Messiah. You missed it. Or, hey, he's coming. I'm his messenger. Follow me probably lead you to be killed during that time frame right so listen understand he's saying this is this is what they're going to do this is one of their tactics you have to remember something whatever god does satan will try to copy it he's just a cheap imposter he's the guy that does elvis at weddings okay that's who he is right he's the bob seeger tribute band that's what he is right he's he might be good at it but he's still a cheap imposter that's what he is. He's just trying to impersonate God. 
right? And he's saying that if it were possible, this chief imposter could actually deceive the very elect. He probably, he's saying if it were possible, he would even deceive them. That's how good he's going to be. But why won't it be possible? Why won't that be possible? Because the elect will have, will have already believed. They'll know he's the Antichrist. They'll know what he's doing. They'll identify who he is, and they won't fall for it. And he's going to put an end before it's too late. So that's all he was saying there, right? So nothing he does is going to surprise those who have believed. They will know who he is and what he's capable of, right? And then he finished by reminding them, no one knows when I'm coming. That's basically what he's saying. No one knows when I'm coming. Let's look at this again, verse 25. It says, Behold, I have told you in advance, so if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now listen. No one knows when the end is. This should be an easy one. If someone writes a book that says they figured out the end of time, they're a liar. If someone tells you they figured out who the Antichrist is, they're a liar. If someone tells you they know when Jesus is coming back, they're a liar. Right? Those are things that are not going to be revealed to us, especially when Jesus is coming back. No one knows when he's coming back. So this should be easy. If somebody says, he's coming back on this day, come and I'll take you to him. No, they're a liar. Don't follow him. That's, he was just giving them a plain and simple instruction. Here's what they're going to try to do. Recognize it. Don't believe it. Right? They're not to be trusted. Now, before I close, amidst all this prophecy, I see one overwhelming theme. The one thing that makes me keep reading. Because if I think about it, if you didn't understand prophecy, you'd read a few chapters and you'd be the most depressed human being alive <laughs> of all the things that's coming. But there's one thing I see, an overwhelming theme I think is really important. God never said we wouldn't face challenges from the enemy. I, I always hate that when you hear pastors try to use that as their altar call. You know, are you struggling? Come to Jesus. That'll go away. That's a lie. Do you fight with your husband or wife? Come to Jesus. He'll make you guys never fight. That's a lie. Right? And I mean, I've heard him try to sell that snake oil. That's not true. He never said we wouldn't be challenged by the enemy. He actually said the polar opposite. He said we would be challenged by the enemy. What he did say is I will never leave you or forsake you. I will always make it work out to your good if you love me. Right? That's what he said. He never said he was going to abandon us. If you look at the people who were attacked in the Bible, God was always there. He always had their back. He always brought it out for their good, right? And God hasn't changed. He's the same. He always has been. The same, same God he always has been. He still loves us. He's still going to take care of us. You know why we struggle with that? Because we don't want to believe it until we figure it out. You're never going to figure out the God of all creation. You and our job to, is it's not to figure out how he's going to do what he said he's going to do. Just believe that he's going to do what he said he's going to do. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to have to figure anything else out anyway. I just like to trust him. And that's what I see through all this prophecy, all the stuff that's scary I'm not afraid of. Because I believed. I know where I'm going to be. All the stuff that's so mystical and everybody wants to fight about, you guys can fight about it. I'm going to be in the good seats. It ain't me. I'm not worrying about that. The overwhelming thing I see, the theme I see, is that God is faithful no matter what, no matter when, no matter who is attacking you. I'm going to go ahead and close there. I'm going to ask you would please bow your heads. If this is your first time, we always give a brief invitation, and here's why. I just believe that the Word of God is powerful. 
I don't believe the word of God. And matter of fact, the scripture actually says that his word doesn't come back void. I don't believe there's never, there's ever a time when the word of God is taught that it doesn't touch someone. And we don't ask people to come up front and do that stuff. We don't do that. I just want to pray for you. If you feel like you're not sure where you stand or you feel like God's speaking to you and, and you want me to pray for you, just make eye contact and put your head right back down. Bless those people. Bless those people. I'm not going to point you out. Bless those people. I'm just going to pray for you. Because he's calling you because he loves you. And believe me, he just began to speak. There's a lot more he has to say. So I'm going to pray for you. And those of you who are listening and watching online, I'm going to pray for you also. And believers, I say this every week, I want to pray that we get serious. Prophecy should tell us that all things come to an end. It's not enough for us just to be ready to face the end. We, we need to make sure the people we love, the people we work with, anyone that will listen, can also have that confidence we have. We need to live a life that draws it. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for all that you do. We thank you for your love, your mercy, your kindness, your grace. It's hard to understand how you can love us because every day we prove why we needed Jesus. Every day we make mistakes. Every day we sin. And if it weren't for the blood of your son, we'd be hopeless and helpless. But I'm thankful that he did shed his innocent blood to cover my sin. And I'm thankful that all we have to do is believe. And I just pray if there's someone here who doesn't know you, that they just stop trying to figure it out and just trust your word. Your word says whosoever will believe will have eternal life. If they can believe that what Jesus did was enough to guarantee their eternal life, they'll have it. And if they make that decision, I pray that they reach out to us or reach out to a good Christian organization, a friend that they know, so that someone can help guide them and walk with them in their new journey. And God, for those of us who know you, give us a desire to be more passionate there are so many things out there to distract us, and we are so easily distracted. I just believe that as the time draws closer to an end, those things are going to increase because the enemy doesn't want us sharing this amazing gospel, this free gift of eternal life. Give us the strength to resist that temptation and to focus on drawing people to you through how we act and through how we live and through how we love. We just pray that you would go with us as we leave here and keep us safe. And if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, let us come together and give you all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory you're so worthy of. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.